3650 Physiology of Exercise Lecture, Tuesday, August 31st, 2010, Bioenergetics and Creatine Phosphate. All right, questions about schedule? We have quiz Thursday, right? Yes. Okay, first quiz. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, first quiz Thursday. We'll do it right at the beginning of class. So you come in, I'll hand out the quizzes. Should take you less than 10 minutes. We'll take them up. Um, you do have a question? Pardon? There's, uh, the quiz isn't real long, but it, there could be a variety of types of questions on there. Could be multiple choice, could be true false, could be fill in the blank, could be short answer, could be outline the characteristics of, you know, bullet point type things. So could be uh, any of those. How many questions? How many questions? I don't know. I haven't made up the quiz yet. You want to make sure I stay in a good mood between now and then. Um, as a way of getting an idea of what types of questions I ask, I would suggest checking out the sample quiz or practice quiz that's on ULEARN. Okay? Uh, it should be available to you at the end of class today, at, after 2 o'clock today. Um, if for any reason, uh, when you leave class today, go ahead and somebody get on there relatively quickly, try to access that quiz. If it's not coming up or not letting you into it for some reason, let me know right away so I can try some other gyrations. But I believe it is set up to be released to everybody uh, by the end of class today. It will cover anything as eligible from hello, my name is Andy Doyle. And, until, until I finish uh, class today. Okay? So any, anything in between is eligible. Did you have a question about the quiz? Oh, okay. Um, the podcast is up there from the first day, so you can go listen to everything I said. Um, okay, so practice quiz, quiz is on Thursday. If you have any problem accessing the practice quiz, let me know ASAP. Um, on Thursday, we will spend a little bit of time talking about this journal article assignment as well. Some of you may have gotten on there already. There are some things that will be changing based uh, from what's uh, currently on ULEARN. Um, and I believe the first part of that assignment is due a week from today. Um, but we'll go through Thursday exactly what's expected for the first thing that you turn in. And that first thing that you turn in as part of this uh, critical thinking through writing, you will also have an opportunity to get feedback on it and rewrite it and turn it in again. So don't, don't, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Don't get too worried about what's due next week until we have a chance to talk about it. Okay? So we'll do that on Thursday. Any other questions, issues? Is anybody still having trouble getting on you learn? You're still not you're still not able to get in there. So basically when you log on to you learn, this class does not show up. Dang. Okay. Yeah, same problem. Same problem. Okay. Pardon? No, I thought I had it on there for next Tuesday. It's Friday. 
Yes, sir. Oh, does it? Okay. Well, my mistake. It'll be next Tuesday. Okay. Yeah, next Tuesday. I guess I, I, I didn't get that one shifted when I redid the schedule for this time, so take that, that first where it says journal article number one or something like that, and article one, bump it to next Tuesday. Thank you. Um, okay, that'll be the seventh, day after Labor Day. That means you have a three-day uh, weekend to work on it. Okay, have I got that? Good with that? Okay. <clears throat> All right, we've done a kind of an introduction to exercise physiology, sort of what it's about and uh, sort of generally why it's important um, in, in our approach in here. The approach that I like to take with this particular class is, is uh, a systems physiology approach, which is we'll look at different physiological systems um, and talk about the acute responses and um, chronic adaptations as we go through each of these characteristics. We'll also spend a good bit of time trying to integrate those systems and talking about how they work in conjunction with each other uh, to accomplish the, this, this overall task of exercising or participating in sports. The first system I want to talk about is the bioenergetics system. Okay, This idea, this notion of bioenergetics. Um, that's sort of the outline of what we're covering. All right, well, what do I mean by this term bioenergetics? What does that mean? It has something to do with energy. Okay, life energy from what perspective? Okay, um, things that we consume. This is basically the idea of taking the energy that is contained in food, okay, and converting it to some useful form of energy that we can utilize in the body. Okay? Um, we do that differently than other living organisms. Plants, for example, get their energy from photosynthesis is the chemical process. They get their energy from the sun and through this chemical process turn it into a source of energy that they can use uh, to sustain life and to grow. Okay? We do it a little bit differently. We consume food and we have to take the energy that is contained in those food items and then turn it into some kind of useful energy that we can use in the body. Okay, so basically the idea is we're taking food or the energy contained in food and uh, converting it to some useful, for us, useful form of energy. All right, well then that begs the question, what is energy? What is, what is it? Power. Power. Power may be one way of measuring or expressing energy. Okay, uh, its concept is a little bit difficult to explain, but it essentially has to do with the capacity to perform work. Okay, the capacity to perform work within the body. What sorts of uh, what types of work do we need to be able to perform? Okay, muscle movement, so we may have mechanical work, all right? All right, so there may be some mechanical work. The process of producing force by muscles is an actual uh, mechanical process. It will, you should have already covered in physiology and we'll cover in some detail uh, in this class as well. Okay, so that's an example of mechanical work. What other kinds of work do we have to perform? Chemical. 
Okay? Uh, we're going to spend some time in this section talking about chemical work. Okay, so we'll clarify that a little bit more as we go along, particularly today. What other types of work? Pardon? Physical? Well, I'll kind of lump that in with mechanical. Transportation. Transportation. Okay, somebody read their notes. What kind of transportation work? Now, this is not transporting the body from point A to point B. This is transportation within the body. What do we have to transport? Oxygen. Oxygen would be one thing. What else? Nutrients, okay. Uh, in what form, once we eat this food, in what form do we transport nutrients around in the body? Pardon? You, you guys, you, how many of you just ate lunch? Okay, calories is, a, is an actual way of expressing uh, or, or measuring energy, okay. <clears throat> but if you just ate lunch, what, what nutrients do you have in the food that you just ate that you need to transport through your body? Protein, Protein is one. Carbohydrates, fat, okay. Those are your three main nutrients, and the body has to transport them from your gut, get it through the walls of your gut into the bloodstream, and then move that blood around the body to deliver those nutrients to places uh, that need them. Uh, you've eaten, which was good, hopefully, because now that you're sitting in class, you need to make sure that your brain has an adequate and steady supply of glucose, of carbohydrate, so that your brain can stay nice and alert and, and uh, pay attention in class. Okay? Uh, oxygen we have to transport through the body, and how do we do that? Breathing. In the blood. Okay, we, we breathe it in, we transport it from the lungs into the blood, and then it requires some energy to move this blood through the system. Okay, so lots of different types of work. Um, what about electrical? Does your body need to do any kind of electrical work? How so? What's that? Heart. How, do, how does the how's the heart involved with electrical work? Yeah, well, hopefully you don't have any kind of either external defibrillator or implanted defibrillator. That could be electrical, but that's a that's a that's a device. Does does your heart have any kind of electrical work it does on its own? Yeah. What does it do? It makes the heart beat. Okay, that action potential. Okay. Now, that action potential, this electrical current that your heart sends to the rest of the heart muscle to tell it to contract or produce force, um, it is established by having an imbalance of electrolytes across that cell membrane. Right. This resting membrane potential, is that sounding familiar from biology or physiology? Okay, the, the, the two in particular uh, electrolytes that we're concerned about uh, are sodium and potassium. And sodium tends to be high in concentration outside the cell. And potassium tends to be in high in concentration inside the cell. So if you've got something like sodium that's high in concentration outside the cell, where does it want to go? Inside. It wants to leak inside the cell. And if you've got high concentrations of potassium inside the cell, where does it want to go? Outside. outside. Well, how do we maintain this equal this balance? Okay. Does it require energy? Sodium potassium pump that you may have talked about with that action potential? Okay. We pump sodium out, we pump potassium in to try to keep this resting 
membrane potential so that when we want to send electrical signals uh, as a communication uh, within the body, we have the capacity to do that. Okay? So lots of type of work that needs to be done in the body, so we need energy to do that. Um, now, everybody's familiar with this first law of thermodynamics. It's often referred to as the law of conservation of energy. And you are familiar with it because you can most certainly complete the following sentence. Energy can neither be created nor destroyed, but transformed or changed into what? Another form, another type of energy. Okay? So it's within a given system... It, energy is not created or destroyed. It is transformed or changed in, from one type of energy to another. A, uh, one particular example might be an old steam locomotive where we take thermal energy, heat that is generated by this, this fire, uh, it then heats water, and the water is used then to transform the heat energy to drive these pistons and, and move the wheels of the steam locomotive. So we have taken the energy that was contained in heat, and we have converted it to a form of energy that is mechanical. Okay? <clears throat> now, some other concepts about energy. Uh, and you can think of it as um, energy being either stored or utilized. Okay? And so we tend to think of energy in a storage form, and we refer to it as potential energy. It's not necessarily doing anything right now, but it's sitting in a position where it has the capacity to do something at some point. Okay? So we refer to that as potential energy. A, uh, a dam, uh, or more accurately, the, a reservoir of water behind a dam represents uh, a vast amount of potential energy. Okay, that water's just sitting there behind the dam, not really doing anything, but if you do the right things, it has the capacity to perform a significant amount of uh, useful work. Okay, and in fact, most of the dams in this country are hydroelectric dams. So if you allow this water to move, go from a position of potential or stored energy and release it, which we often refer to as kinetic energy, a form of kinetic energy, um, this water is sent down these little uh, sluices where it turns this turbine. And then, so now this is an example of taking the mechanical energy in the moving water and converting it to electrical energy. Okay? So, energy of position, where you have either potential energy or kinetic energy. And in fact, uh, if you can see right in here, there's so much potential energy in, this, in these uh, reservoirs behind these large dams. Uh, these are these sluice gates that are about 20 feet tall. So when you open these things up, and allow the water to flow, there is so much energy contained in this water that it shoots a column of, of water uh, 20 feet in diameter um, a couple of hundred yards down the river. Okay, So a lot of potential energy stored in this case. Okay, <clears throat> so 
We've got these processes then by which we can either store or release energy. And we have specific terms that we utilize to describe them. Um, the first is endergonic. And in this case, we are going to store or absorb energy. So these are reactions or processes that store or absorb energy. And then as a complementary uh, process, we've got endergonic reactions. So um, exergonic, I'm sorry. So endergonic is storing or absorbing. Exergonic is release. Okay? Now, some people might wonder why I bought a... Uh, rat trapped class. I was thinking one day about um, how I could sort of demonstrate to class this process of uh, storing and releasing energy. Uh, and I thought, oh, a mouse trap might, might work. Uh, my wife was actually headed to the store, so sort of absentmindedly I asked her to pick up a mouse trap. And I think she was a little worried that we might have a rodent problem because she came home with the biggest rat trap in the, at the store. Uh, so nonetheless, this actually makes a pretty good example for our uh, storing and releasing energy. Okay, so if you in fact have a rodent problem, uh, we've got a device that can perform some useful work for us. Okay, is it in a position where it can perform useful work for us now? No. Uh, what do you have to do? Got to set it. Okay, so let's see. If I set this thing. Okay. Now, in putting, is it in a form where it can perform some useful work? Yes. Okay. Um, what did I have to do to get it in that form? Did I have to put some energy into it? Yes. It took some effort to bend that thing back against the spring and get it set, right? So, what part of the reaction or process was that? How would we describe that? Endergonic. We put some energy into the system. Well, where's the energy gone? Did it, it, yeah, did it go anywhere? No, it's stored, right? right? So, now you've got this device that can perform some useful work for us, and you can put it in your basement or in the corner of your attic, and you can let it sit there for a minute, an hour, a day, a week, whatever, and it will sit there with the energy that you put into it stored, ready to perform some useful task. Okay? Um, so, we put the energy into it at one time, and at some time in the future, we can then take the energy back out of it to perform some useful task. Alright? So, now, if I've set this correctly, will it just do that spontaneously on its own? No. What do you have to do? You have to provide some kind of stimulus or trigger. Okay. So, some kind of stimulus or trigger. The energy that was stored in that device has been released, and now it can perform this useful task or this useful work for us. Didn't scare you there, did it? <laughs> okay. This is a mechanical example. This is a mechanical example 
of what chemicals can do in the body. Okay, I spent a little time giving this background because people, if you jump right into the chemistry, the biochemistry of bioenergetics, people seem to have a little bit of difficulty in grasping this process. The process is exactly the same, it's just done with chemical compounds instead of a mechanical device. Okay? Now, uh, our chemical device, if you will, in the body are called high energy phosphate compounds. High energy phosphates. Um, we can take energy that is stored in these chemical bonds and that energy can be stored for some period of time and then when you need it through a series of chemical reactions that energy can be released to perform some kind of useful task. Okay? It can be for example converted to mechanical energy that we use in force production by muscle. Okay? So it's the exact same process just done with chemical compounds in the body versus a mechanical example of a steam locomotive, hydroelectric dam, or rat trap. Same process. The most important high-energy phosphate compound is adenosine triphosphate, ATP. You all are very familiar with this idea or this notion of ATP. Um, it is composed of a, a protein-like structure a sugar-like structure, and so when you connect those two things together, it forms a chemical compound called adenosine. Then it, there are three phosphate groups. One, two, three. So it is adenosine triphosphate. We store energy We store energy in these phosphate bonds. So when you have the phosphate connected to the other phosphate, within that chemical structure, energy is stored in a position of potential energy. Okay? When you go through this chemical reaction, you take adenosine triphosphate, or ATP, and you split off one of those phosphate groups. What you're left with is adenosine diphosphate, or ADP. You've got that phosphate group, and the energy that was stored in that bond is now released. Okay? So it's the same process. We've got the chemical compound. There's potential energy stored in the bond. When you break the bond, you let that potential energy out that can then be used for something. Okay? This is a one-step chemical reaction, ATP to ADP and inorganic phosphate. It is catalyzed by an enzyme, and this enzyme is ATPase. Okay? ATPase. So if this is a one-step chemical reaction, uh, how fast do you figure it is? Pretty fast. And if it's a, a one-step chemical reaction that is also catalyzed by an enzyme, how fast is it? Faster. Okay, because what's the role of enzymes in chemical reactions? What do they do? Speed up reactions. Okay? Uh, we'll talk about muscle, in particular skeletal muscle, a lot in this class. And so one of the prefix uh, uh, terms that we uh, 
uh, have associated with muscle is myo, and one of our contractile proteins in skeletal muscle is myosin. And so when we look at this process in skeletal muscle, we'll particularly talk about myosin ATPase as an example, a specific type of ATPase enzyme that we find in skeletal muscle that helps this process run faster. Okay, myosin ATPase. All right, so we've talked about enzymes, that enzymes make chemical reactions faster. Okay, how do they do that? They reduce potential energy. Did they do anything to change anything about the nature of the reaction? Does it, does it, change, does it change ATP or does it change ADP or inorganic phosphate? Does it do anything to change the actual products uh, uh, and reactants in here? No, it doesn't change the nature of the reaction at all. It just makes it go faster. And it does that by lowering potential um, I'm sorry, energy um, Thank you. This activation energy. You can kind of think of it like a um, uh, you got a boulder sitting on top of a hill and you want to push it and get it rolling down the hill. okay? It's sort of like um, uh, reducing the amount of energy that it takes to push that boulder and get it going. okay? It'll get going faster and it'll roll faster. Um, so it's this activation energy. Um, now, enzymes are chemical structures themselves, uh, largely uh, constructed of proteins. They are not static uh, structures themselves. They can change. And in particular, they change their activity. And by activity, what I mean is the degree to which they can influence the speed of the reaction. Okay? And there are some common things that cause the activity of enzymes to either increase or decrease. Uh, as an example, temperature is one. If you take most enzymes involved in the biochemical reactions in the, in the human body and you warm them up slightly, the activity of that enzyme increases. That means it allows the reaction to go faster. Okay? It doesn't change the, the actual structure of the enzyme or anything, it just makes it more uh, into a more active uh, uh, state. What happens to body temperature when you exercise? It goes up. Okay? That helps because that helps increase the activity of enzymes that are involved in these important energy reactions. Okay, uh, what would what were, would uh, happen if you heated them up too much? Yeah, they basically die because these things are mostly made out of proteins and they denature or they come apart. Okay, um, if you cool enzymes down, it also reduces the the activity of the enzymes. Okay? So there's an optimal temperature. So if they get too hot, 
or too cold, the activity goes down. Okay? Uh, another factor that strongly influences the activity of enzymes is pH. Okay? The acid-base balance of the environment of that, where that uh, uh, enzyme is. There is once again an optimal pH range. If you make the environment too basic or too alkaline, or particularly if you make it too acidic, then that causes activity of the pH to go down. And as we'll see down the road a little bit, exercise is one of those things that can dramatically influence the body's pH balance, okay, the acid-base balance. It can cause big changes in pH, particularly towards the acidic side. Also with activity is training. It's not surprising that the activity of enzymes would react to the stimulus of this chemical reaction being used frequently. So if you're sedentary, you're not using a whole lot of ATP to, to engage in high-intensity activities, so you're not really stressing this chemical reaction very much. But if you engage in regular exercise, that requires more energy by the body, so you've got to run this reaction at a higher rate to produce... Uh, to, to liberate the energy for the activity, and in fact your ATPase enzyme activity responds to that and becomes uh, in a more active state. Then if you become sedentary and don't do that activity over time, then uh, the activity of these enzymes is going to regress. <coughs> Okay, um, activation energy. Now, ATP can be thought of as uh, kind of a common energy currency in the body. Okay, anybody been to Europe? Okay, um, one of the things, particularly in the last, I guess, 10 years since they adopted it, uh, is that the European Union, most of the countries that are in the European Union, have adopted the euro. Uh, a single common currency. So it makes it really easy if you're in Ireland and you want to go across the channel to France, you don't have to change money. Okay? It's a common currency that can be used in a variety of different countries uh, and it makes uh, purchasing things and commerce, it makes life a lot easier because they're all in the same currency. Uh, energy has the same sort of thing in the body. ATP is that common energy currency that's used by every single cell in the body. Okay, So when we talk about energy and, and the real source of energy to produce work, we're talking about this reaction of ATP breaking down and, and liberating energy. All right, what we're going to focus on really is the energy that is needed to do some kind of exercise. Okay, The direct source of energy for exercise is ATP. Okay. Let me say that again, make sure everybody's very clear on that. The direct source of energy for exercise, for, for muscles producing force, is ATP. All right, this should be familiar to you uh, from your basic physiology course. Uh, this is a, a schematic 
of an ultra-microscopic level view of a skeletal or striated muscle. Okay? And so we've got two overlapping uh, protein strands that are these contractile proteins. We have a thick filament that has these globular heads that stick off. And what, what's the name of this filament? This is myosin. Okay. Um, we've got these thin filaments that lie in an arrangement where they overlap the myosins, and these filaments are actin. Okay. So we've got actin and myosin. The myosin filaments are the ones that have these globular heads that stick off, and they're going to attach to the actins to form cross bridges so that we can produce force. All right, the role of ATP in providing energy for this process is so vital that ATP is stored right on these myosin heads. Okay? So we've got ATP molecules that are stored right there, right at the, the, the site where we're going to form a cross bridge and produce force in the muscle. Okay? Um, now, it goes through a process like this. I, I'm, I'm going to go back and, and do this in much more detail when we get to the uh, neuromuscular section. But basically, with this schematic, um, here we've got our myosin. Here's the globular head. Here's the actin up here. And here's adenosine diphosphate and inorganic phosphate. So our ATP is actually already split and it puts this myosin head in, in what's called an energized state. Okay? So the myosin head then forms a cross bridge with the actin up here. The adenosine diphosphate and the, and the phosphate group leave the myosin head, which allows this myosin head to actually go through the process of muscle contraction. It swivels and pulls on the actin to produce force. So this is where the force is being produced. Um, in order for this process to continue, we've got to reload another ATP back on this myosin head, and it then splits and puts the head in this energized form. Okay? So, just keep those, those, uh, those steps in mind. So here's kind of our scheme. Our, our basic scheme of this muscle producing force. We, we've got a skeletal muscle here that we're asking it to perform some kind of exercise. In order to produce force, we need energy. We get that energy directly from ATP. We split ATP, we split the phosphate group off. That leaves adenosine diphosphate and that liberates energy to produce, for this muscle to produce force. Okay? One step chemical reaction, very fast, catalyzed by an enzyme, so very rapid. Okay? Now, we actually only store very small amounts of ATP in the body. Uh, and there's very few things that we can do that cause us to use ATP at a, as, at a high rate like exercise. Because with exercise, we're, we're expending a lot of energy. We need a lot of energy for high-intensity activity. And so we're going to burn ATP very rapidly. We've got to have some way of replacing this ATP. Okay? Now... 
If we go back to this process, if we don't reload ATP molecules back on here, this cross bridge can't break and reset. Okay? Let me, let me make sure everybody's clear with that. Once you've expended the ATP and released the energy, we can't break this cross bridge and reset the system for more force production unless you reload another ATP on here. Okay? So, if you don't have ATP replaced, you get what is called muscle rigor. That means those myosin heads attach, they form a cross bridge, and they don't let go. So the muscle can't relax. How many of you have heard of the term rigor mortis? Okay, what does that mean? Yes. When somebody's dead, specifically what does it mean when somebody's dead? Yes. They're stiff. Okay, it is because they're not alive anymore they're not replenishing any ATP to their muscles, so their muscles literally, the myosin heads form cross bridges, and because there's no new ATP being reloaded, those cross bridges don't let go, and the muscles are in rigor, and the muscles are stiff. Okay? Now, eventually, after several days, you start to get decomposition uh, that occurs, but at least in this initial period of time, you get this rigor. Okay? A Charlie horse or a cramp, uh, different story, okay? And, and I'll defer talking about that one until down the road a little bit when we get in the muscular system. It is a continued contracted state, but for a completely different reason, okay? All right, so we've got this, this idea of rigor. So we've got to be able to replace, if we're going to use up ATP, for energy for producing force by muscles, we've got to be able to replace that ATP quickly. Okay? And we must have mechanisms to do that fairly quickly because we can exercise at very high intensity without going into rigor. Right? So we must have some ways that we can replace this ATP pretty quickly. Now, let's take a look at what happens uh, uh, in muscle with ATP concentration. Um, there are a variety of different studies that have looked at that, at this, and this column over here will depict uh, sort of typically what happens. Uh, what we're looking at is either a muscle being 100% full of ATP or a muscle being totally depleted uh, down to zero ATP. Okay? In this particular research study, what they did is they uh, stimulated this muscle to produce lots of force and looked at what happened with the ATP concentration in the muscle. So when this person starts exercising at a high intensity, ATP concentration falls. So it goes from 100%, but when it gets down to about 70% or so, it doesn't go down any further. Instead of continuing to produce force in the muscle and using up ATP, the muscle instead defaults to not producing as much force so that we, it doesn't use up as much ATP. And when a muscle doesn't produce as much force as you're asking it to or you want it to, what do we call that? Fatigue. Fatigue. Okay? So, this seems kind of weird, but 
the large portion of ATP concentration in the muscle is actually left untouched. Seems to be some sort of protective mechanism because if you were able to use all of the ATP in this muscle, this muscle cell would go into rigor and it would likely destroy the muscle cell. Okay? So instead, we protect a large proportion of the ATP in the cell, but the way we protect it is by allowing the muscle to fatigue or preventing it from continuing to produce force at a rate that outstrips the ability of uh, our ability to replace ATP. Is there some other way that you can expend more than 30% after initial time? Say again, I can't hear. Is there some other way that you can expend more than 30% of, uh, of the ATP at the beginning and then go down maybe to 50 or 60% fatigue? Good question. Let me, let, me, let me work my way along here and see. Um, well, and then when you stop exercising, when you fatigue and you stop exercising, what the studies tell us is the ATP concentration comes right back up from 70 back up to 100 percent. Okay, during recovery. I'll get. I'm, I'm getting to your your point. It'll just take me a couple of slides here. Um, okay, going going looking at it from an athletic standpoint, mm -hmm. is there a way an athlete would be able to increase the amount of ATP of ATP they have that way they could prolong the time it takes for them to fatigue? Um, Yes and no. So it, it, as, as you'll find out, a lot of my answers in here are equivocal. Okay, it, it, it they either start with it depends or yes or no, yes and no. Okay, um, let's say you're completely sedentary and you start lifting weights. Are you likely to uh, increase your ATP store in your body? Do you think? Why not? Are you able to produce more force? Are you able to exercise for a longer period of time? No. If you've, say, done intensive weight training three days a week for six months, so you've gotten stronger, you can do more reps for more weight for more reps for more sets, right? So do you think you've probably increased your ATP supply in your body? No. Pardon? The process just sped up. The process just sped up. Okay, well, good answer. It did speed up because your... Uh, ATP ACE enzyme has gotten more uh, active. You actually do have more total ATP in your body because what other body changes do you have in that six months of intensive weight training? More what? Somebody said it. What do you have more of? Muscle. Okay, you have more muscle. So when you have more muscle, you have more total ATP in your body. As it turns out, any given amount of muscle tissue doesn't necessarily have a higher concentration of ATP, but because now you have more total muscle, you have more total ATP in your body. You can also break down that ATP a little faster because you're the, the creatine uh, or the uh, ATPase enzyme has gotten more active. Okay? Now, we will talk about, uh, in fact, we'll talk today about some strategies or ideas, actually probably won't really get into it until Tuesday, or until Thursday, but some strategies or ideas of how we might be able to maximize these systems. Okay? In fact, after I did a, this whole long and involved sports nutrition lecture one time, somebody just stuck their hand up and say, why don't we just eat ATP? <laughs> Perfectly logical question, right? If, 
if ATP is our direct source of energy, why don't we just eat ATP? Well, as it turns out, it doesn't survive the digestive process. You know, you put it in your stomach and the acids and the digestive enzymes take this molecule and break it all to bits. Okay? So your body actually forms ATP just fine out of the other nutrients that you consume. Okay? But that's sort of a strategy that people would think of. Well, and this is the rationale or the, mind thought, uh, the mindset with a lot of these strategies to improve athletic performance is, well, gosh, if ATP is our important energy source, why don't we just pack more of that stuff in the body? Okay? And, and we'll, we'll explore this, this topic uh, shortly. No, it's not steroids. It would be if you, if you didn't digest it, you would inject it. It would go straight to the bloodstream. Well, no, actually it wouldn't. Because what happens is with ATP, um, the structure of ATP has uh, these phosphate groups on it. Okay? And as it turns out, big uh, phosphate molecules like this don't cross uh, cell membranes very easily. So if you've got a lot of ATP floating around in your bloodstream, it's actually not taken up very easily in this exact form into muscle. Okay? So uh, you, you guys are on the right idea, thinking of different ways you might be able to manipulate this process, but there are reasons that some of these ways don't work. Okay? So we'll keep, we'll keep exploring this idea. It's, uh, uh, it actually is one of the things that keep exercise scientists busy is thinking about stuff like this and trying to try these various manipulations. So, okay? Um, yeah, so how does muscle endurance and muscle strength factor into this? Um, that's, a, that's a complicated question. His question was how does then muscle strength and muscle endurance factor into this? Basically you've got uh, uh, ends of a continuum because if you're talking about muscle strength you're talking about the maximum amount of force that this muscle can produce. And if you're talking about endurance, you're talking about producing a lesser amount of force, but doing it repetitively over time. And so it sort of depends on, uh, you can pretty neatly define the one end of the continuum, the strength, because there's a maximum. The other end of the continuum, you've got everything from, well, is a mile or 1,500 meter race, is that endurance? compared to a one rep max, or is it a marathon, or is it a Ironman link triathlon? So you, you, typically in those studies, what you have to do is you have to define what you really mean by endurance. And one of the cool things about this whole process is that there are reasons for muscle fatigue when you're talking about high force, high power activities, but there's also reasons for fatigue when you're doing something that's more endurance oriented. Okay, does a, Olympic weightlifter fatigue when he or she is trying to do a, a, a maximum uh, Olympic lift? Can they fatigue doing a, a maximum one rep max effort? Do they fatigue? Sure. Does a marathoner who runs 26 miles fatigue? Yeah. yeah. But different scenario, different requirements, different reasons for fatigue. Okay, and we'll, we'll get there. That one we probably won't get to until... You're going to have to be patient. <laughs> That's going to be a good bit later in the semester, but it's, you're, you're on the right track. Okay, uh, I've talked a bit about research in here. We're going to focus on some of these research articles. And so I want to talk about my favorite research study in looking at what happens to ATP and muscle. It shows some of the fun stuff you can do uh, in exercise physiology. 
Now, this was a study. It was published a while ago, um, but it's still pretty interesting. Uh, they were interested in how much, uh, what happened to the ATP concentration in muscle when uh, people were doing very high force, high power type activities. So they focused on sprinting. Uh, they recruited um, national class. I, I don't know how well they f stand in world class uh, 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 sprinters from Finland. Probably, probably not so high. Um, but anyway, these were experienced sprinters. And what they did is they, they had them do sprints of 40 meters, of 60 meters, of 80 meters, and of 100 meters. And they got a little piece of muscle out of them. To, to see how much ATP was left in their muscle at the end of each one of these all-out sprints. Uh, now, to do this, you need to do what's called a muscle biopsy, which means you make a little incision in their skin, uh, you make a little incision, make sure there's a little slit cut in the fascia that covers the muscle. You take this little biopsy needle and you have to poke it down inside the muscle and clip off a little piece. Um, and so it takes a little bit of time, about the amount of time that it took me to describe what you do. It takes a little bit of time to get that little piece of muscle. So doing it before the sprint was no big deal. They had time to do it. They got them warmed up and everything, and then they got their little piece of muscle from them. But at the end of the sprint, these people have been exercising at very high intensity. You want to get that muscle sample as quickly as you can. Uh, and ATP is probably something that's replaced pretty quickly in muscle, so you want to get that piece of muscle as quick as you can. So the visual image uh, of what these researchers did, just, just uh, uh, I love. They put a mattress at the end of the track for the sprinters to fall onto at full speed so that blood and muscle samples could be taken immediately after each run. So it's kind of like you, you see in indoor track meets where they got the big pads at the end and they're like, bam, fall down, and you got like three or four guys in white coats jumping on them to you know, get muscle samples out of them and cool stuff. It's terrible. That's science, man. Okay. Uh, on our x-axis down here, we've got sprint distance. We've got the pre-sample, and we've got 40, 60, 80, and 100 meters. Okay? On our y-axis over here, we have muscle ATP concentration, and that's the, the uh, colored-in uh, circle. Okay? So we start with ATP concentration right here. And as these athletes are sprinting 40, 60, 80, 100 meters, does ATP concentration go down? Yeah. Does it go? Now, notice our scale starts at 2. Does it go to 0? No. Does it even come close to going to 0? No. So did these athletes deplete their ATP in their muscles when they were sprinting as hard as they voluntarily could? No. And in fact, if you look at a little bit over five as a percentage of what they finished with right here, um, it went down about 30%. Okay, So this is typically what you see. So these, these are the results of a real live experiment with humans doing very high intensity uh, voluntary uh, sprinting type activity and the ATP goes down some but the muscle still protects a fairly large amount of the ATP. Okay, Now the question was asked, can you force it down below that? You can, but you can't force it down, that, uh, down below that voluntarily. Okay? Studies with humans and with animals suggest that you can only do that 
with what's called non-physiological conditions. You can actually hook people or a piece of muscle up to an electrical stimulation device and stimulate the muscle to contract at a rate that you cannot do with your own brain and it will force ATP down to lower levels. Okay? But you can't do it voluntarily. All right? Even if chased by a pack of you know, angry pit bulls and you're sprinting as fast as you can, you can push your ATP levels down to about 70% or so, but then that muscle will start to fatigue. Okay? Now, another question. How is it that ATP was increasing from like 60 to 80 meters? Yeah, that's actually probably just one of those little anomalies where it, it, it doesn't appear that that's a significant difference. It's just a, when you've only got seven subjects, sometimes you get slight variations, you know, in the, and that's why I'm showing you the results of a real study. I could have drawn a, you know, a fake line, but, uh, so what he's asking is why did this bump up right here? And that's probably not a real increase. Okay, it's just a little bit of variability in the, uh, a good way to explain that might be if you've got a coin and you flip a coin, what are the odds that it will be heads and the odds that it will be tails? 50-50. If you take that coin and you flip it 100 times, will it always exactly do 50 heads and 50 tails? No, by chance there will be some slight variation. Okay, and so that's kind of what happens is by chance you get some slight variation but what you do in this research study is you use the statistical methods to determine whether or not what the probability is that that's a real difference or just a, a bit of an anomaly in the results. And in this case, it appears that's just a little anomaly. Okay? All right. So ATP. Is it possible for a human to exercise voluntarily at an intensity to deplete ATP in their muscles? No. The answer to that is no. All right. Um, in order to, if you've used ATP, in order to get this ATP back, it has to go through a process that's called rephosphorylation. Okay? Fancy term for just taking this inorganic phosphate, this phosphate group, and attaching it back to the ADP and reform ATP. It's called rephosphorylation. When you split ATP to ADP and the inorganic phosphate, you release energy. So that's what type of energy reaction? Exergonic, because it's releasing energy. And if you're going to do the opposite, it needs to be what kind of energy reaction? Endergonic and you have to put energy into it. Okay? In order to reform ATP, it's an endergonic reaction or process. We have to put energy into this. So, most and hopefully all of you have heard that the body has three different energy systems. And I talk about it a, a, a bit differently than a lot of textbooks or maybe other lectures that you've heard because this first one is often referred to as the ATP creatine phosphate, ATP, CP energy system. And I don't refer to it like that because your primary energy system is ATP. So that's first. You've got these three other energy systems and the role, the function of these three energy systems is to take adenosine diphosphate 
and return it back to ATP. Okay? So the role of these three energy systems is to reform or rephosphorylate ATP. Uh, the first one of these energy systems uh, that we'll talk about is creatine phosphate. The second one that, um, that we'll talk about is glycolysis, anaerobic glycolysis. This is also sometimes referred to um, as the lactate or lactic acid energy system. And the third one that we'll talk about is oxidative phosphorylation, which is also often referred to as our aerobic energy system. Okay? And essentially what we're going to do over the next couple of weeks is take each one of these energy systems in turn and talk about them. Now, there is an unfortunate tendency to think about these energy systems in discrete forms. That, well, they are discrete forms, but that they operate independently from one another. Uh, and we tend to think of these energy systems like they are, in effect, act like light switches. That under a certain type of activity, you've got one energy system, one of the three that's on, and the other two are off. And as you move to some other type of energy or exercise activity, uh, this one goes off and, and some other one goes on. Okay? Well, it's a mistake to think of these like that. Um, so the example that I like to use are, are dimmer switches. You need to think of these three energy systems like they're dimmer switches. All three are on all the time. Okay? Just under certain conditions, one or more may be turned up and another one turned down. Okay? As an example, as you're sitting here right now, you wouldn't think that you would be using much of your lactic acid or uh, uh, a glycolytic energy system, but we can take blood out of anybody in this classroom, put it through our lactate analyzer, and you'll have some lactate in your blood, which indicates that you're using glycolysis. But it's not turned up very much. Uh, what's the energy system you're predominantly using as you're sitting here in class? oxidative phosphorylation or your aerobic energy system. Is it turned up very much compared to what it might be turned up if you went uh, to the rec center and did 30 minutes of aerobic exercise? No. Okay. So you need to think of these three energy systems as being all of them on all the time. And as we go through this, this, this section on bioenergetics, we'll talk about which systems predominate because there's often... one or maybe two of the energy systems that, that uh, provide the majority of the energy for a certain activity. Okay, and we'll talk about those characteristics as we go along. Okay, so uh, these are some of the things that you should be able to do uh, when thinking about the bioenergetic system. And what we're going to do is go on ahead and... quickly move on to our next uh, topic, which is our first energy system, creatine phosphate. Okay. Alright, so we've got this scheme. We've got a muscle that we're asking to produce some kind of force. Uh, in order to produce that force, we need energy. We know that that energy comes directly from ATP, 
And when ATP is split, we're left with uh, adenosine diphosphate. And so we want to be able to hopefully pretty rapidly and completely replace ATP. And uh, so the first energy system we're going to use to do that is creatine phosphate. Okay, now let me back up because creatine phosphate, um, you sometimes also see the term, whoops, go back. You will sometimes see the term phosphocreatine. It is the same thing. Creatine phosphate and phosphocreatine is the same thing. You will, there, you will sometimes see the abbreviation CP or CRP for creatine phosphate. You will also sometimes see uh, PC or PCR. It's one of the unfortunate things about scientists sometimes is they can't concretely agree on what they're going to call something and what acronyms or abbreviations they're going to use. Uh, at any rate, these all mean the same thing in this context. Okay, So I, I, I refer to it as creatine phosphate, and I use uh, CRP as the abbreviation. Okay, Creatine phosphate is another high-energy phosphate group. So it's a chemical compound, and it's got a phosphate stuck on it, and what do we store in that phosphate bond? Energy. energy. We store energy in that phosphate bond. That energy can be donated to adenosine diphosphate along with a phosphate group to reform ATP. Okay? Now, what is this stuff? Creatine. Go to GNC and you look down the shelves and there's these big white tubs of Creatine, right? Where does it really come from? What is it? It's not a white powder. <laughs> well, it is, but in its natural form, it's a protein. It's actually a form of a protein called an amine, but it's basically a protein. Okay? It is stored, as you might expect, right in muscle. Because where do you need a lot of energy for force production? In muscle. So it is stored in muscle. So you can obtain this stuff, creatine, in your diet from uh, particularly so from uh, uh, sources of meat, fish, chicken, uh, uh, etc. Okay. If you don't eat meat, that's not that big of a deal because as long as you have an adequate protein intake uh, from you know plant sources, are fine. Uh, there are tissues in your body like your liver kidneys, etc., that can take three amino acids and make creatine just fine. Okay, So that's why people can live forever, well not forever, people can live uh, a normal lifespan without ever eating meat. Okay, We can be vegetarians and this is an instance where your body's tissues, as long as it has adequate protein and the adequate amino acids, it can make creatine just fine. Okay, So you've got this creatine molecule and whether you eat it and it comes in through your digestive system or your body's tissues make it, it goes into your bloodstream. So you've got creatine in your blood. 
As these creatine molecules float around in your bloodstream, some tissues like muscle will take creatine out. Okay? These creatine molecules will be taken up by tissues like muscle, and once it gets into the muscle cell, it, will, it can be phosphorylated to form creatine phosphate. Okay? Within a typical muscle cell, about two-thirds of the creatine exists as creatine phosphate, and about one-third exists as creatine, or what we refer to as free creatine. Okay? It, in essence, forms a pool or reservoir of energy and phosphate within that muscle so that we can rephosphorylate ATP. Now, there is some turnover of creatine, and this creatine molecule is actually chemically turned into uh, what's called creatinine, which is filtered by your kidneys and goes out in your urine. Okay? And that's about two grams a day. So what we talk about this creatine turnover is your body typically either consumes and absorbs or makes about two grams a day and gets rid of about two grams a day. So that's your sort of typical creatine turnover. It is a high energy phosphate that is stored in a variety of tissues in the body, but you find it in relatively high concentration in muscle. It is a pool or a reservoir of energy and phosphate to restore ATP. So, we've got creatine phosphate. It can combine with adenosine diphosphate. And in a one-step chemical reaction, it can reform ATP. And what is left is the free creatine. Okay? This is a one-step chemical reaction, and it is catalyzed by an enzyme called creatine kinase. Feel free to abbreviate it as CK. If this is a one-step chemical reaction catalyzed by an enzyme, tell me something about its speed. It is very fast. The reason I talk about this energy system first is because it is the fastest energy system that we have to replace ATP. The creatine phosphate is stored right in the muscle cell, and it's a one-step fast reaction to replace or rephosphorylate ATP. Okay, happens very quickly. All right, and so we've got this sort of scheme. Here's our muscle, it's producing force, needs energy. We get the energy directly from ATP, which leaves ADP. We've got this creatine phosphate stored right in the muscle, right next to it. It can give energy and phosphate to ADP, reforms ATP, it's catalyzed by an enzyme, and what we've got left is the free creatine over here. Okay? So that's our, our biochemical scheme for our creatine phosphate energy system. Now, unlike ATP, creatine phosphate can essentially de be depleted in muscle. Okay? Let me say that again. Unlike ATP, Creatine phosphate can essentially be depleted in muscle. So here's the scheme that happens when um, we exercise at high intensity. Muscle's producing a lot of force, needs lots of energy. We get it directly from ATP. As ATP concentration starts to fall, we're going to start replacing ATP uh, a rephosphorylate it from creatine phosphate. 
Eventually, though, we're going to get to a point where creatine phosphate has gotten to such low levels that it is no longer available to replace ATP. So we essentially block this part of the reaction. If we keep exercising, what happens to ATP concentration? If we've now blocked the ability to replace it with creatine phosphate, what happens to ATP concentration? It's going to start going down, right? But it's only going to go down to 70%. And when it gets down to that 70%, it's going to say, I'm not going any lower. And as a result, the energy state of the muscle falls and uh, energy state falls and the muscle fatigues. Okay? Nope, we're not there yet. D totally different. Totally different energy system. Okay? All right, so here's, here's that same scheme I just talked you through, but I put it in a flow chart type form so you can, you can work your way through it. If you're, more, if you're more oriented towards words instead of pictures, then you can walk. It's exactly what I just went through uh, with the scheme. Back to my favorite study, except this time they, they looked at um, creatine phosphate as well as ATP. So we've got our creatine phosphate in the open circles here, and we can see as they sprint 40, 60, 80, 100 meters, big fall in creatine phosphate. Doesn't go all the way down to zero, but this wasn't a um, uh, completely. This, this was not a completely fatiguing exercise, um, but still huge fall in creatine phosphate stores. Okay, so. ATP, we tend to protect, we use directly, but we tend to protect it. Creatine phosphate, we use it to replace ATP, but it is limited in supply. Okay, limited in supply. And if we keep going at very high force, very high power outputs, creatine phosphate, once it approaches being depleted, then is not available to produce AT, uh, rephosphorylate ATP, and you start to see muscle fatigue. Okay, so characteristics of our creatine phosphate energy system. It is one chemical step, okay, creatine phosphate and ADP to ATP and creatine. Uh, it is catalyzed by an enzyme, creatine kinase or CK, so it is very fast. It is a very fast reaction to replace ATP. If we have one creatine phosphate molecule, we can rephosphorylate one ATP, one-to-one -one ratio. Okay, one creatine phosphate molecule replaces one ATP. Um, how long does it take a good sprinter to sprint 100 meters? Yeah, low, yeah, 10, 10 seconds-ish, okay, something around there. And you can see we're not completely depleted, but we've gotten pretty low in concentration. So if we use this energy system at a very high rate, it tends to deplete ATP in around 10 seconds or so. You'll see some textbooks say 15 seconds, you know, some say 7, you know, whatever. But it's roughly in the 10 seconds or so ballpark. So we talk about the duration of this energy system being around 10 seconds if you use it at a very high rate. Okay? Um, where did oxygen appear in this chemical reaction that we talked about? 
What's the role of oxygen in here? We didn't, right? So this is an energy system that we refer to as anaerobic. It does not require oxygen. But I will say that's actually only half true. The part of the reaction that you see right here so far, this part of the reaction does not require oxygen for it to proceed. Okay, But we'll talk about where we do require oxygen in a moment. All right, so, but it is referred to as one of our anaerobic energy systems. Okay? Fatigue is typically associated with creatine phosphate depletion. Okay? There's a, and, and when I say depletion, what I'm talking about is getting very close to zero. Most of these systems don't actually, you know, unlike your car, you know, it doesn't completely empty the gas tank. Okay? There's usually some little bit of that fuel source left in the muscle cell to use as a precursor for. Uh, synthesizing more, but essentially talking about very, 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 very low levels. Okay, um, it is the predominant energy system that is used in short duration, very high intensity, power-oriented activities. Okay, we've we've kind of focused on sprinting. Give me some examples of some other things where this might be the predominant energy system. Okay, uh, in weightlifting, it would be uh, essentially like a one repetition maximum. Okay, uh, power lifting. Okay, Olympic lifting. Okay, not doing multiple repetitions, but you know, kind of a maximal effort. Okay, what else? Sure. Ah, we'll get there. Good question. We'll get there in a second. I don't know. Do I have a second left? I do. I have a minute. I have some portion of between 2.14 to 2.15. Um, that's a good question. Well, it looks like, actually looks like we'll get to that on uh, Thursday. Um, uh, some other examples. What? What? Okay, a baseball swing. Very, very uh, high force. Very uh, power oriented. Okay? Uh, football. What about football? Um, saying if you're an offensive line, you want to go block somebody. Okay. Um, it, that, that initial surge and, and block would probably be it, not the um, uh, longer type of driving, the, the initial seconds. Okay? Hang on, folks. Don't, we're not done yet. Question or comment? Shot put. Okay? Putting the shot. Very high power oriented activities. If you want to hint on the quiz, you might want to be listening. I would strongly recommend being very proficient in knowing the characteristics of the energy systems that we've talked about to date. That's not enough of a hint for you, then. <laughs> You're going to have a problem in this class, I think. Okay? So first thing on Thursday, come in, take the quiz, um, and then we'll continue with our discussion of creatine on Thursday. How many times can you take this break? I think it's set up you can take it as many times as you want. You'll see when you take it. You probably don't need to take it a whole bunch of times. But, so, okay? All right. See you Thursday. <laughs>